Today I'm bringing the word of the Lord to you. If you don't have a Bible, we have some up the back, so please grab your Bible. Look at Deuteronomy um, chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. That's Deuteronomy 5, 6 to 11. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an image or form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation, for those who hate me, but showing love to the thousands of generations, to those who love me and can keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is RJ. I'm one of the pastors here in Tungabi. Uh, today we're looking at uh, two of the Ten Commandments, uh, number two and number two, bowing down, uh, and number three, we're going to look at uh, what it means to misuse uh, the name of God. Before I begin, allow me to say a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your presence here today but we ask that your spirit will transform us and renew us and remind us of your goodness and love and mercy and holiness and compassion towards us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, 2016, uh, Mark Manson, he's an internet blogger, published a book titled The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Stuff. I think that's what it says there. You might have seen this in the shops because this was a, it was a very popular book. It was a self-help book giving a philosophical perspective on how we should view our life. He says basically that the key to a good life is not to care too much about everything and try embracing the negative things in life and so that you can enjoy life more. The key to a good life is to lower your expectations and don't put too much pressure on yourself and don't put too much rules in your life. His book was a bestseller in New York and sold more than 8 million copies today. Uh, two years later, in 2018, leading, leading clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson also published a book titled 12 Rules for Life, The Antidote to Chaos. He says life is generally chaotic. And it's up to you to keep your life in order. And so he lays out 12 rules in order to bring peace and happiness in your life. My favorite one is rule number 12, which is pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Uh, we have two cats, but I'm not sure if that's an advantage for us because our cats hate being touched. But he says, but he's saying to make sure you slow down and then just enjoy the simple things that you can appreciate around you. Again, the book is another bestseller, selling about six million copies worldwide today. But I find it interesting that one book says, don't put too much rules around you, lower your expectations, embrace negative things and just learn from them, and you will, to en you will learn to enjoy life more. But the other book says, here are 12 rules that will help turn your chaos into order if you follow them, and you will have a more fruitful life. 
See, one is against having high expectations and pressures, and the other one is creating these clear instructions to follow. But both of them is aiming to provide principles on how to have a prosperous and meaningful life. Both promises a prosperous life, but with opposite approach. And society are buying them because people want to know how do we live a prosperous life? What is the key to a happy life? Is it not caring too much? Or is it having a good set of rules to follow? Now, I find it interesting that after God gave out the Ten Commandments, God said this in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And you can see it in your Bible in, chapter, in verse 33. After he gave the Ten Commandments, he says, Walk in obedience, obey the law to all the Lord, Yahweh your God has commanded you, so that, why, you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. He says, follow these rules and you will have a prosperous and meaningful life. And so some of you, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you think, yes, follow the rules. Yes, because rules lead to discipline. Discipline leads to blessings. But the problem is the Bible is not a self-help book. It's not promising every time you tick the box, you become more and more successful and happy in life. This is not how we should read the Ten Commandments. But some of us are thinking, well, the Ten Commandments are really outdated. They're, we say that what's more important is to follow your instinct, to follow your heart, to not care too much what the world thinks or not be defined by rules, but just be true to yourself. That's the only rule that matters today. But that too is a problem. See, on one side, as Christians, we think rules are good because they're the key to life. But on the other, we think rules are outdated. What matters is having good intentions as Christians. And today I wanna to show you that both can be a problem. See, the second and third commandment shows why. It tells us why irreligion, not having rules is a problem. While at the same time, religion, following a bunch of rules, can be problematic. Three things I want to show you today, what the second and third commandment is really teaching us. And the three things are having an accurate perception of who God is, and then properly representing him, proper representation. And then thirdly, I want to show you why the incarnation was necessary. So we're going to look at the sin of idolatry and heresy, the sin of hypocrisy, and the solution to both of that, right? So let's, let's begin. Firstly, the accurate perception or the sin of idolatry. It says in the commandment that you shall not make for yourself an image in a form of anything in heaven or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, when we read this commandment, what we think it's saying is we shouldn't make or we shouldn't build a statue and then worship or pray to this thing that we've created as a God. And so right away we think, yes, we're safe. We can tick that box but because we don't worship or pray to a physical idol. Now, we think that the ancient society was stupid enough to think that st statues are gods. But that is not the reason why they have a statue back then in their homes, in their, in their, in their temples. And I, I don't believe they were stupid at all. That statue for them is a way for them to make an invisible God to become visible. It's a way for them to relate better to a God that they're praying to. They're not worshiping the statue per se. They're worshiping what 
or who the statue represents. And so, in, in fact, in Exodus 32, we are told when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments up in the mountain, the Israelites were down below, they were getting restless, they don't know what's taking Moses so long. So the people took the initiative in worshiping God. They said, look, we don't know where Moses is, let's worship God. So they have the right intention. They want to worship God that led them out of Egypt. So in verse, verses 4 to 5 in Exodus 32, and look at it carefully. I'll put it up in the screen. It says, Aaron took what they handed him, the gold, and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods. But really in the Bible, it says that this is your God, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh, the God who took us out of Egypt. So the, Israelite, the Israelites made a golden calf, not because they were starting to turn away from God, from Yahweh, but because they want the true God made visible, that the intention is good, but the execution is bad. And we might think, yes, we, of, you know, we often say, as long as the, your intention is right, it should be fine. But the second commandment makes it very clear that God wants to be known and worshipped exactly the way he has revealed himself, the way he wants to be worshipped. Our accurate perception of who God is, is very, very important. What God is actually trying to say in the second commandment is, you shall not imagine me the way you want me to be. So the Israelites created a golden calf because the image of a calf is, in ancient beliefs, it represented God as being incredibly strong and powerful who provides prosperity, which is, again, a very true nature of God. But that's not the complete picture of God. It doesn't represent his compassion, his faithfulness, his holiness, and other things. Because any picture or imagination that you try to make about God will conceal more than it will reveal. That any picture that you try to create will reveal something, yes, but it will also hide a lot of things. For example, if you look at these two pictures, on one side you have an angry, powerful-looking God, right? Michelangelo's painting in the Sistine Chapel. That is the God that you will call to help you fight against your enemies. Muscular, angry, and vengeful. But if you need a gentle God who will bring comfort and reassurance, you will prefer the other picture. Jesus as a gentle shepherd. Good-looking. You feel like you just want to cuddle up next to him. So what are we doing? We're creating and calling on a God that we want. Now, Picture paints a thousand words, but it can still very, very limited on what it can do. Now, it doesn't say that you must never make a picture. I don't think that's what the Bible is teaching. I think it's simply telling us not to rely on our own imagination, not try to imagine God on our own. Hence, God has revealed himself through his word, that he has disclosed who he is by speaking to us because words reveal what's inside of us. Words allows us to express what we're thinking and what we want. Words really reveal the real person inside. That's why communication is key to relationship. That's why counseling is about bringing out feelings in your own words. 
Because words brings out the person inside of you. And this is why God has given us his word to reveal himself. It stops us from imagining uh, God the way we want him to be. And that's why we read and study God's word, because that is how we get to know him. That through his word, God is saying, this is who I am. This is the God that I have revealed. It also means that we can't pick and choose which characteristics of God that we like. You can't say, yes, I believe in a loving and generous and merciful God, but I can't accept the one that punishes person for their sins. I can't believe in a God who will send someone to hell. Or you can't say, I can't accept a God who will allow so much suffering here on earth. I can't believe in a God who will control my sexuality. See, once you try to pick and choose which part you like and don't like, you've created a God for yourself. You've created a God that you can control. You've brought God to your level that you have created an idol. See, God wants to be known and believed and treated and worshipped exactly for who he is. At the beginning of most relationships, often we have certain expectations and imagination of what the person is like. Uh, often we like a person because we have this certain expectation of, 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 of something that we've created in our heads. So in marriage, for example, it's normal to suddenly realize that the person you married is not everything the person you thought and imagined. And so in order for the relationship to survive, what you do is you try to put aside your imagination and your expectation and embrace the person that you have before you. That a relationship will not survive if all you want is to control the person to your own expectation, to shape that person to your own will. No one wants to be in a relationship where they can't be themselves, where they have no freedom to express who they are. So we want to be loved, we want to be accepted and treated for who we are because the opposite is to be used by someone for their own benefit. We don't want to be treated like a robot and be controlled by someone, or we don't want to be treated like, a, like a, an empty canvas that people get, get to paint of who we are. We want to be treated like a person. And so how much more for the God of the universe? That's the second commandment is telling us, I am not a genie that will answer to your, to your every wishes. That I am not a computer that you can program. I'm not an experiment that you can deconstruct and recreate for yourself. Right? Verse 9 is clear. It's saying, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh Elohim. I am a jealous God. I am to be loved and to be obeyed for who I am. See, see how hard this commandment is? Because every single one of us would prefer a God that answers to us. We want to be the one in control. We want to have the freedom to do whatever we want. And if God doesn't like it, then he can go. And so we prefer to have an idol that we can control. And that's why people have created cults and religions that suits them. Because they get to do the rules. And if they don't like it, they take it out. They can shape it to the way they want because they're simply creating an idol to their liking. Now, second point, the third law, proper representation of God, the sin of hypocrisy. 
So the second commandment tells us the importance of having an accurate understanding or perception of who God is and worshiping him for who he is. Now, the third commandment is about the importance of properly representing him. It says, you shall not misuse the name of God, the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Again, we, I think often when we read this verse, the third commandment, we think that, well, the application is we shouldn't use God's name as a swear word. Now, that can be, that can be one of the applications, but that's not the full thrust of the text. Because in ancient times, I think we've said this a few times, that in ancient times, a name is much more than uh, the, the word that we, that we use to call someone. Back then, a, person, a person's name carries the weight of the person's identity, that their name has history, their name defines who they are. And a name is really like a summary of the person in one word. And so really the third commandment is telling us, you shouldn't misuse the identity of God. We shouldn't misuse the power under the name of God. We shouldn't misrepresent God in any way. That a, a footy player, even when they're not playing, they carry the name of the club wherever they go. And we've seen that in the news over and over again. A school student, if they're wearing a uniform, is representing the name and the reputation of the school. Even when you're trying to squeeze in a discount, we might use the name of someone that we know. Right? For example, if I go to a mechanic, if I go to James and say, hey, I know your son, Harvey. He plays in my soccer team. What I'm really trying to do is that I'm trying to build credit using his son's name, that, that he's more likely to give me a discount and not rip me off just because I mentioned a name, see? But what if I don't really know his son? It means that I'm using his son's name in vain, that the third commandment is saying, do not use God's name when you don't really know who God is. Do not claim the name when you don't know the person, because name carries power and authority, right? If one child says to their sibling, hey, dad told me that I am in charge and you should do this. What are they trying to do? They're trying to use dad's authority and power. And if that's a lie, what if their dad never said a thing? They're using his name in vain. See, and we know and we have seen how easy and how damaging it is to use God's name in vain. Someone can claim, hey, God spoke to me and he told me to tell you that you should do this. And see, a lot of people would think, yes, if God said so, then I would do it. Or even something like, hey, I prayed about it and God told me that I should do this. But how do you know that God, really, that, that God really spoke to you? How do you know that you're not just imagining it, that he really wants you to do it? And it's not something that you want that you're imagining. See, it's very easy to justify something as godly just because we put God's name in it, isn't it? It's very easy to use it as an excuse for our own benefit. But the other way we misuse God's name is simply taking God's authority and power in vain. It's calling him Lord and God, and yet not treating him as Lord and God, to be hypocritical. Jesus said in Matthew 7, he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's saying not everyone who confesses that Lord, sorry, that Jesus is Lord is actually saved, but only those who obeys God. Now, Jesus is not saying obedience is the key to salvation. He's not saying good works will save you. He's saying that the way you know you have this saving relationship with me is through your obedience. How do you know your children treats you like a father? Because they show respect and proper obedience. How do you know you have a good relationship with your spouse? Because you surrender your will out of love. Obedience is surrendering your, surrendering your will. How do you know that Jesus is really your Lord? Because you treat him as your master and your, and your Lord. You allow him to take charge in your life. To call Jesus Lord and yet not treat him as your Lord is simply to take his name in vain. It's to belittle his authority and power. It's to reduce him to our level. The third commandment is saying, do not reduce my sovereignty, my power, my authority, my character. Do not mistreat my identity. Do not claim to be associated with me and yet not treat me for who I really am. That when Moses went up the mountain, God didn't give him 10 suggestions. It's not a self-help book. They are the 10 commandments. They are laws and decrees God wants to be followed. God said, obey these rules, verse 9, because you love me and you're willing to trust me. Follow the rules simply because I am king. I am God in your life. Now, you, do you know what that means? Again, if you are picking and choosing which rules to follow, if you're picking and choosing which is comfortable for you or what's relevant, you think, for you, you're really, making, you're really not making God your God. You might be calling him Lord, Lord, but he's not really your Lord, right? It means you're taking his name, you're belittling his name in vain. And therefore, unless you're willing to say, I give up my independence, I will trust you with my life, I will follow you regardless of how I feel, I will obey you regardless of what my friends say or what society says, unless you're willing to say that, you're taking God's name in vain. You might say you're a Christian, you're a follower of God, but if your identity does not reflect that, then you're misusing the title of being a Christian. You're not living up to the name and the reputation of God. You're misusing the name of God. Now, do you see how, how much harder these commandments are? That it's not just something, oh, we shouldn't bow down to an idol or we shouldn't swear. Which leads us to our third point, the necessary incarnation. Remember the rich young ruler? He asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I do to receive eternal prosperity? Jesus said, well, you follow the Ten Commandments. And this guy replied, well, that's easy. I've, I've been following them since I was young. And I think maybe today you're thinking, Ten Commandments, that's easy. I have not worshipped an idol. I don't swear. I haven't, I haven't killed anyone. But as we've seen, it's much more than that. The second commandment, do not make an idol. It's really saying, do not create a God of your own imagination. Because sin wants us to be in control. He wants us, sin wants us to control God. Because we want to be in control. 
The third commandment, do not misuse the name of God, saying that do not claim to know Yahweh as your God, but treat him as a, but not treat him, sorry, as the sovereign and all-powerful God. We are to trust him and obey him for who he is. So in the end, again, we want to be in control. And so really, the, the real issue is, who's in control? Who's in charge? The very first commandment, you shall have no other God aside from me. Meaning that you shall not depend or any, on anything or on anyone, including yourself, to be your own savior, to be your own God. And that's where the rich young ruler failed as well. Because Jesus tells him in Mark 5, sell everything you have. If you've done all the commandments, sell everything you have. Meaning get rid of the, the things that's giving you control and then follow me. But in the end, he just couldn't trust what Jesus can do for him. Because he doesn't really know who Jesus is. He can't let go of his own control. He doesn't know Colossians 1, where Paul tells us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God, and that God the Father was placed to have all his fullness. Everything about God is dwelling on Jesus. That everything who God is, 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 in, is in Jesus. All the attributes of God are in Jesus, that Jesus is God in flesh. That the rich young ruler is looking for a way to get to God. He's asking, what are the rules that I need to obey? But he doesn't realize that God came down to him. Or as John puts it, that the word became flesh. That the invisible, all-powerful word from the Old Testament became a person that we can see, hold, and relate to. Because God knew it was impossible to obey the Ten Commandments. God said, don't create an image of me, but without an image of God, we will create our own. Because we need to be able to relate to God like a person. Because that's what we have in Genesis 1, as we said last week. That God was walking in the garden with his people, relating to his people like a person. But because of his holiness and our sinfulness, he needed to separate himself. So all we are left is just hearing his voice. But see, our greatest desire is to see the glory of God face to face. And that the only thing will satisfy, that's the only thing that will satisfy us. So what did God do? He humbled himself, became a person that we can relate to. It was a necessary incarnation. That in Exodus, when God gave the Ten Commandments... The Israelites weren't allowed to go up the, the mountain. Even Moses, he was, he was limited of what he can see and do. Because if they stand before God, his glory, God's pure glory will consume them. That they can only relate to God as fire and cloud. But now in the New Testament, God comes down not as a fire, but he comes down as a person. That there was no need to go up. And so now we can relate to God as a person through Jesus Christ. We don't have to imagine what God is like because we get to see him as a person. He didn't just come down so that he can relate. He also came down to reconcile us back. And that's the second part of the Colossians verse. It says that through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. That Jesus came down because we have marred or we have damaged the image of God in us, 
We have misused the name of God and the image of God, that we are His creation, and yet we do not reflect uh, the, the glory of the Creator. And so through Jesus, through faith and submission to Him, He restores God's image in us. Do you know, do you know what Jesus means? The word means? In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. It, mean, it means Yahweh saves, God saves. It's very interesting that out of all the names that God could have chosen for himself as a person when he came down, he chose Yeshua, Jesus, because he wants us to know, he wants us to relate to him and to remember all the time that he's the God that saves, that we can never, ever go up to him, that we can, we can never, ever live up to his name, to his reputation, but, he, but we needed a savior. He needed to be a savior to reconcile us. The name of Jesus is a reminder that we can never ever fulfill the Ten Commandments on our own. That, that we can never find eternal life and prosperity and blessing from God. We can never meet the standards of God. So God came down, fulfilled the law that we can never do, so that once again we can relate to God face to face and carry the name of God without guilt and shame, because Jesus has paid for it all on the cross. And so in Acts 4, Acts 4 tells us, there is no other name, there is no other name under heaven given to mankind, which we must be saved, aside from the name of Yeshua, Jesus, God saves. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, our Savior and Lord and King, Jesus Christ. And Lord, often we, Jesus, often we don't live up to that name. We don't, we're, not, we're not worthy to call out to that name. But Lord, we pray that, that we, will, we will know what exactly Jesus did for us, what it took him to pay for our sins, and that only through him we can find salvation and eternal life and find your glory so that one day we can see you face to face. This we pray in his name. Amen.